Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by the Neuromarketing Science and Business Association, the only association for those with a professional interest in neuromarketing. Visit www.nmsba.com for events and membership details. And Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Email pmcgee at decisionbreakers.com to see how they can help you win your war in-store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and insight professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision-making. My name is Phil McGee, and I'm speaking today with Carol Mosier, a doctoral candidate at the University of Michigan's School of Information, whose research interests include human-computer interaction, consumer behavior, and social computing. Specifically, Carol is interested in understanding how web design and other socio-technical factors influence consumer behavior in a variety of contexts, including e-commerce and online consumer communities. So Carol recently published a paper titled Impulse Buying, Design Practices and Consumer Needs, which investigates the features that e-commerce sites use to encourage impulse shopping. It's based on a systematic content analysis of the top 200 U.S. e-commerce websites and a survey among online impulse buyers. If you're like me, you want to know what she found. So I invited her to join us today to discuss her work. So Carol, before we get started, welcome to Shoppernomics. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure, uh, for sure. Um, Carol, can you do me a favor and, and just start by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is that you do? Sure. Thank you for the great introduction. Um, I think you nailed it right on the head. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Michigan School of Information. I focus a lot in HCI, so human-computer interaction. That's how individuals interact with technology. And my particular sub-focus is how consumers interact with, with technology. So that would be with, for example, e-commerce mm. technologies. And prior to um, coming to the University of Michigan, I did spend a number of years working on the agency side in marketing and graphic design. So I also have, have that perspective to draw mm. from. So very excited to talk to you about this paper on impulse buying. I love that background. It's great that you have the design and agency experience that you can bring to, um, to the work that you're doing here. I'm curious about your paper. Um, did it play a role in your candidacy, your, your doctoral candidacy? Uh, is this something that uh, you, you were doing as part of your program or as, or as part of your, your doctoral thesis? Yeah, that's right. So I'm working on my dissertation, and this is one component of it. It'll be looking at impulse buying more broadly and to sort of kick off this investigation into the topic of impulse buying, wanted to sort of capture what baseline is in terms of design practices. So taking a look at what are e-commerce sites doing today, what are marketers doing today and designers doing today, mm -hmm. uh, before we can really think about um, how that might affect users and for those users that would like to, to have some help, some support in overcoming impulsive behaviors, um, with e-commerce, then taking a look at what type of technologies uh, we could design to support those individuals. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic um, and uh, obviously caught my attention and I know will be of interest to this audience. Um, so, so thank you for, for taking it up. I know this was quite an effort 
Um, and, and I'm curious, you know, why did you decide to, to explore this particular topic? Is, is it of personal interest to you or was it assigned to you? How, how did it come about? It's a good question. Actually, this topic came to my attention through another study that we were running. Um, there was a research project that was an interview study of Facebook users who use Facebook groups to buy and sell uh, items between themselves. Um, these are called called buy sell trade groups. And in interviewing participants who use these groups, um, kept hearing about how they love the groups to try and declutter their homes and make some extra spending money. Um, but they found that they were also impulsively buying things unexpectedly, <laughs> and they were seeing lots of interesting, relatively cheap items pop up on their phone, and um, they ended up sometimes undoing the good that they thought they were doing by creating some extra cash. They ended up with accumulating more items than they thought and sometimes did, you know, express a little bit of regret, like, oh, wish I hadn't bought all that, that stuff. And so that was a minor finding in that paper, but something that piqued my interest. And so this was, this was sort of the genesis to, to look at this topic a little bit closer. Yeah, great observation. Uh, certainly, it's happened to me. <laughs> so I'm glad, glad I'm not the only one out there. Um, so, all right. So, so before we get too far down the path of this discussion, uh, something I want to address early on. Uh, you state in your paper that it's written from the perspective of a social advocate. So, uh, so for the purposes of this discussion, um, I hope you won't mind indulging those of us on the dark side. <laughs> uh, having worked at an agency, I, I think you know maybe what I mean by the dark side, but um, <laughs> but but I'm kidding. Um, and 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 I assure you that this audience's interest is not in how to take advantage of consumers who are easy targets, uh, but how to make their marketing expenditures more effective, which uh, which in turn helps reduce costs and and you know ends up improving the user experience for the great majority of shoppers. Um, so you know an example that comes to mind is. You could argue that the use of product ratings and product reviews um, on, on a website will drive impulse purchases for some. Uh, and in fact, your paper cites this as a leading tactic used um, in e-commerce. But mm -hmm. at the same time, I believe product reviews provide a great service for shoppers. I, I know for me, um, anytime I'm kind of uh, trying to understand options in a new category, I I always go to the um, go to the reviews just to kind of help me in my in my learning curve. Uh, so I'm not sure necessarily that driving impulse purchases is always a primary motive when using some of these tactics. Um, and in fact, I know a lot of e-commerce companies, they just like to try new things. Um, and, and just for the, for the sake of trying new things. And then if something works, they just keep doing it. They don't necessarily have always a hypothesis behind what they're trying. Um, it's it just kind of a, a test and learn culture. Um, and so that's how they kind of find their way to these things. If it works, they just keep doing it. So is, is that, is that fair? Yeah, no, I think that's fair. It's a, it's a great point. Um, you're right. We do take a stance that I would call as a consumer, consumer advocate stance or one that where we are advocating for ethical design practices and ethical marketing practices. Uh, that it does not mean that we're suggesting that all product reviews and ratings and other design features that could potentially encourage impulse buying be removed from all the e-commerce sites. That's certainly not what we're calling for. And we actually explicitly state that in the paper, that's, that's not the goal. The goal here is 
to encourage and advocate design practices and marketing practices that are a little bit more maybe thoughtful and mindful of the well-being of the consumer and what's in the best interest of the consumer as well. So I hear you in, in what you're saying. Sometimes we're just testing things out as marketers and seeing what, what can happen. Um, I think then the ethical obligation there is to be responsible and, and being mindful about how that might impact the well-being of your consumers. Yes. And, and it's not to say that there aren't you know, bad actors out there. Uh, you know, you, sure. one of your, one of the things your paper talks about is sneaking things into people's shopping carts, um, yes. you know, which is a clear ethics violation and not something that we advocate, um, nor do we condone any of the, the dark pattern features, um, that your paper talks about, um, that are used to trick and trap users. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm curious, did you actually find e-commerce sites that snuck products into carts? You know, because of the size of our study, looking at 200 sites, we were just not able to buy products on each site and complete the purchase cycle. So that was not something oh. we were we would have been able to see, unfortunately. Right. Uh, maybe with a larger budget next time, it would have been great to, to take a look at that practice. Um, but, you know, I think that is a, a pretty clear example of, as you called it, very unethical uh, behavior. And you want to look on the other side of things, the the product, fe the features that perhaps add value to the user experience, like the product reviews or even um, low stock warnings, only two or three left in stock order today. You know, I think that there is value to the consumer and to the user in those that type of information and making that information available in real time. Um, so we wouldn't necessarily recommend removing that. But right. I think that the idea here is, can we be a little bit more transparent about what language we're using and what how we're defining things? So, you know, maybe you're warning consumers that two or three products are left in stock only. Right. But it would also be good to know that that's going to be restocked daily, you know, or that's going to be restocked in a month. So adding that little bit of context, mm -hmm. consumers make a very informed decision. Um, I think that's that's the general idea here about being more thoughtful and mindful and responsible with the information we're sharing. Even these product recommendations that talk about that sort of show products that other consumers had viewed or other consumers had purchased, you know, that other consumers that are similar to you think it would be a, an interesting idea and one that might help consumers make a better judgment about those recommendations or mm -hmm. defining what, how those other consumers are classified as similar to you. What does that mean? You know, and who are these other consumers? Um, that additional type of context and information, I think, can only help consumers make good good decisions. Sure. And, and it's, it's, you know, usually pretty obvious the difference between those things that, that are value added versus those three things which are intended to deceive. Um, right. And, you know, and the winners are going to be using the value added um, tactics and, and obviously you know, the, the losers are going to, are going to be using those tricks, which will, you know, may get you the sale, but they certainly are going to get you, um, loyal customers. So, um, so in doing this, you'd leverage two sources for your research. Um, you did your own examination of the top 200 us e-commerce websites, um, and a survey among online impulse buyers. So, so let's begin with the content analysis, uh, from your website observations, which just, I mean, as I was reading, the rigor that you and your team went through to do this must have been a painstaking exercise. 
Um, so, so this is a big question, you know, coming from that first of your two-part uh, methodology. Um, the big question, and, and feel free to talk as long as you'd like on, on what you learned, what did you find? Yeah, so this content analysis is driven by the, the first big picture question was, do websites use features that can encourage impulse buying? And we can say our answer is, yes, surprisingly, not surprisingly, um, yes, websites do use features that can encourage impulse buying. Um, on average, we found that about 19 features per website were present. So these are these are features that are going to have the potential to encourage impulse buying. And what we were able to do is look at these features and classify them by by theme. So what we, what we see here is that there are certain themes of features that are more common than others. And some of them are maybe um, very not obvious, but that you may have guessed. So for example, themes, a very common theme here is one that can lower the perceived risk of buying online. Um, these are things like offering bigger discounts and um, having very clear refund and return policies. Also things that, that will uh, enhance the temporal proximity to a product. So that's just the fancy way of saying that you can get that product faster whether it's through fast shipping mm. or it's through a very streamlined and quick checkout process, that all speaks to this idea of instant, gratific instant gratification. You can get the product very quickly. Yeah. Those are very common themes that we saw. Some of the um, more interesting themes that I personally found interesting, um, this theme of social influence. So these are features that are really um, taking a look at how information about your peers and what your, how your peers are behaving how that might influence your own behavior. And so this includes uh, features such as ratings, of course, and product um, um, reviews, mm -hmm. but also things like being able to share products or sharing your shopping cart, um, tags on products that are labeling them as bestsellers. That's mm -hmm. indicating that others have found this to be a product they want to buy. Um, and then, uh, you know, one that I think is becoming more common is showing real cu um, customers using a product. So you might see this um, on a product detail page where they're plugging in an Instagram feed of all the user-generated content. Users are taking pictures of themselves using a product. And this, is again, is, a, is a, a way to leverage social influence and see how your peers are behaving, and that can, in, in, in turn, encourage you to purchase that product quickly, too, without perhaps thinking more deliberately about, do you really need this product? What are the consequences of buying this product? Very cool. Now, I'm curious, were you able to know that these uh, individual tactics, in fact, led to impulse buying? Or is, is it um, hypothesized that they would, just given that they are consistent with principles of behavioral economics and and what we know about decision making it's the latter so right here we're not testing any direct effects we're not looking at how the, being exposed to a particular feature might impact specific actual purchasing behavior all we're doing is documenting what the design practices are today yes. so 
these okay. type, the, so those features are based up that categorization of features is based off of what we know currently in the literature, mm -hmm. higher work, um, as you described it, decision science, consumer behavior, um, things that we know from prior work that could encourage more, um, more impulsive behavior, more, um, fast thinking, less deliberative, uh, decision-making. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, in, in effect, these things are known to have these effects because they're, um, you know, you're drawing from other other literature, which may have, um, you know, investigated them specifically, uh, whereas you were more interested in kind of the um, the extent to which these things are being used uh, versus isolating any individual one and, and studying them for their specific effects. Um, so that makes sense. And and, and again, given what you put into the study, uh, the effort and, and the time and, and 200 websites with, was it like, you know, nine pages per website <laughs> on average? Right. Um, and just going through them, you know, nitpicking all the things they're doing. Um, I, I just couldn't imagine that you would try to, you know, go through all of the effects and, and then and then upon what you've already done, uh, you know, try to test their their ability to result in impulse purchasing. But again, you know, you're borrowing from other literature. So so thank you. Great answer. So um, to that point, given what you know about consumer behavior and decision making and behavior based design, um, what was your overall take on how sophisticated uh, these e-commerce marketers were at designing websites that encourage impulse buying? Um, are, they, are they doing it more or less than you thought? Are they doing it um, responsibly? Um, are they abusing it? Uh, are they doing it with, with mastery? I mean, just kind of what was your overall take? Yeah, I think that so that wasn't necessarily something we were intentionally what we would call coding for. So. My impression here, my answer is based off an impression and not a systematic analysis of these sites. But um, my impression is that in general, um, marketers tend to be more sophisticated than not sophisticated in, in this type of um, design, uh, but that it certainly depends. I think that what I, what I had noticed sort of casually looking through the data is that I think the larger brands and the larger firms, perhaps the ones that have the larger budgets for very sophisticated web tools and websites with all the bells and whistles. I, those were the ones that we were, I noticed, I would, I would assess that they're using more of these um, features than others, than smaller operations, perhaps with smaller budgets. Yeah. Uh, so is it in terms of sophistication or is it in terms of um, resources available to the individual company that that might be more what's happening, happening, but yeah, I mean, we're seeing that, uh, you know, all the websites were, were using at least some of these features and I can't speak to if they were abusing or if they were doing these things responsibly, that's, that would be a different experiment. That would, that'd be have to be um, to answer that question. We'd have to look at things differently just looking at the artifact of the website and looking at what's present out there on the web, um, we can see that these are these are definitely strategies being used. Yeah, interesting. And and I thought it interesting that 100% of the websites that you looked at used at least four features uh, that encouraged impulse buying, and 75% used at least 19. Uh, did that surprise you? I mean, when you went out for this, did you have any expectations about? The, the the number of tactics used 
know, I, I think you try not to go into it with um, any particular <laughs> bias or expectation. Sure. So you try and keep your mind open. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's probably the, the proper way to do research. But if I were to separate myself uh, from the researcher role and consider myself as a consumer and as a marketer in a previous uh, career, I think that I w- wasn't going to be surprised that that these features were common, commonly used and, you know, even commonly used across product types. That was another finding we found that, you know, there wasn't one particular type of product, clothing or mm. uh, home goods that was was u- utilizing these features more than another type. It's pretty just universal. Everyone is generally using these features. Interesting. And and your paper includes, and this is, you know, my favorite part of the paper was that there's a table in it that shows the frequency of the tactic of the tactics used. Um, and I'm curious, do you think that there's a link between the activity and the effectiveness? Um, in other words, do you think that the tactics that were used most, like rewards programs, um, mm-hmm. for example, are, are also the most effective at con- converting shoppers? Um, you know, I realize that you don't have sales or conversion data to know for sure, but I'm just interested in your opinion. I think that's a, a reasonable conjecture. Um, without having any data to support that, of course, but there's probably also something else happening here in terms of just what are the norms around how e-commerce sites are designed. We have created over the years of e-commerce design certain expectations and consumers have expectations about how they experience e-commerce. So that might make certain features more common, regardless of, you know, the ROI you're going to get on them and how they're going to affect conversions. So having product ratings and having product uh, product reviews, uh, reward programs, those are things I think consumers are very accustomed to seeing. And so to not include them in your website probably is going against the norm and um, uh, would be unexpected. So that's probably something to also think about. Um, there has been some work, uh, a white paper on econ- these types of features, not specifically just about impulse buying, but different types of um, features that how how they may actually relate to revenue, um, and that's that's an interesting, a different type of, of research, um, but that also can help inform, you know, what the if the frequency of of these different types of design practices, how effective are they actually? There's a uh, there's there's another paper that I read. Oh, gosh, I wish I could remember uh, where it was I saw it, but it said something to the effect that the more tactics are used. Um, and I think the examples that they cited involve scarcity tactics, mm-hmm. um, that the more they're used, the less effective they become. Um, you know, any thoughts or findings that agree with that? Uh, I'm just wondering if it, if, if concerns about ethics and consumer advocacy will self-correct as consumers get wise to these tactics. You know, it's, it's possible. I think consumers are becoming more aware, uh, and more savvy to these types of, um, strategies. So, there could be a self-correcting uh, mechanism here, though I would be, I'd caution to say that that we shouldn't rely on that as our um, our strategy to employ ethical design practices. Uh, the onus really does need to be on the marketer and on the designer. Um, but so that particular paper you mentioned, I haven't read it, but I think that you could imagine that there would be some type of point of diminishing return or even backlash against employing too many of these um, features in a particular site. But to really answer that question, you might want to take a look at for whom that might be the case. You know, we're not all the same. We're all very different. And um, 
in particular individuals who, for example, struggle with impulse buying, that actually may not be the case. That, and, but for other individuals who don't struggle with impulse buying, that, that could really be a turnoff for them. Uh, so again, I think that to answer that question, you really want to take a look at the individual and individual differences. Going back to the point of sophistication, is you know A/B testing is is very common and and you know just it's done all the time and it's very easy to do. Um, so no doubt these things are being monitored, um, you know, ideally before they're applied to the the website and then also monitored over time just to make sure that they they continue to have that conversion uh, success. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as they lose that ability, then you know then they move on to other things. But um, but again, the longer term goal is always to get a loyal consumer. So um, if they start seeing uh, drop offs in, in repeat purchasing as they use some of these tactics, then then hopefully they'll correct them before the self correction occurs on the consumer side. Sure. So um, so the second part of you, so you had the website observation, and then the second part was the survey, which you uh, which you did to find out if consumers and, and these specifically were self described impulse buyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not they wanted help or or some tools um, on the sites to help control their spending, because you know, again, they recognize that they are impulse buyers, and and maybe they're saying, hey, you know, help help me manage my own behavior. Um, what what did you learn here? That's right. So we we did an online survey and we reached out to individuals who um, specifically identified as being frequent online buyers who make impulse purchases and who had this desire to self-correct to, to fix that behavior, that they felt this had become problematic. So just at looking at those individuals, we asked them to um, talk about the types of tools they wish they had access to that could they felt could help them curb their online impulse spending. And we got um, very sophisticated, interesting answers from this group of, of participants. Um, I think the the most common, one of the most common tools that participants wish they had access to were tools that helped make the costs of things more salient. Now, I think that our designs of in e-commerce are very good at expressing the joy and the, all the benefits of a potential purchase. And we, I think those designs tend to minimize what the costs are. And um, so tools that can help make those costs more salient is something that they were hoping for, things that could log the amount that had been spent, not just with an individual website, but maybe across websites or tools that put costs in very personal, relevant ways. For example, um, translating a product cost into the number of hours of work it was going to require to afford this item. So really making these costs more salient, that was, that was a pretty common, commonly described type of tool. I, th- I think airline websites are doing better in this space. Um, you know, it used to be you'd go through and choose your flight based on the price. But then, you know, once you get to the point in the transaction where you get the total cost, you find out you've got all these taxes and fees that, you know, kind of blow up <laughs> your, mm-hmm. your, your, your mental accounting of, of what this was going to be all about. Uh, you know, eBay is notorious for selling items at super discount prices but then having just absorbent shipping costs. Mm-hmm. And, and now I, I believe you can sort based on total cost, which, right. which is one of those tools that, that works. And, and I'm curious, I'm not sure if you coded for this, but um, did you look for um, and quantify 
websites that did deploy these tools? No, we the we did not specifically code for for those particular um, tools while doing the website content analysis. But if you look at the results, you can see there is some overlap. We did find we did code for features that might help encourage deliberation. So the opposite of an impulsive behavior, but more deliberation and reflection. And we did find that uh, websites do inc include some features that encourage deliberation. These would be tools such as um, Q&A sections, product Q&A sections, uh, product comparison tools, and um, voting for which reviews were the most helpful. And a big one is the save for later list. So a, a very commonly requested tool was one that helped consumers delay their purchases, you know, the, the old saying to sleep on it. So consumers would put products in their uh, shopping cart and try to, you know, just wait 24 hours and see if a day later they still wanted the product. So they were hoping for a tool that could help um, actually support that type of self-control intervention. And we do see that at a minimum, e-commerce sites, um, you know, not, not many of them, probably around a quarter of them are including a for safe, uh, save for later list. So these are products that um, they're not ready to check out right now, but going to put them on the back burner. And the intent may not be to delay purchases. It's to maybe to capture purchases that um, might be lost otherwise, but consumers can in fact use the save for later list in that way. Um, so so that, that's one way that current website design does, um, in fact, help, at least in a small way, uh, encourage more deliberative decision-making. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm, and I'm curious, and, and again, I'm going to maybe ask you to speculate here, but if, if marketers were to modify their sites to include some of those uh, enhancements, you know, those, those tools for people to control their impulsivity... Um, do you think they would simply be forfeiting impulse purchases or, or do you think maybe consumers would, would reward them with their loyalty, uh, thereby helping these companies profit over the long term? I think the long term is the key here. So consumers will, will certainly put value in being able to shop in a safe space. That's my speculation. Yes. Um, if they can see and identify in themselves potentially problematic behavior over over time, I think that you start wanting to avoid that brand or that e-commerce site. Um, so if you can create a space that's a trusted environment where the consumer feels that the the company, the, the merchant is not trying to take advantage, but is actually trying to support you and make very good purchase decisions, then I, I would speculate, I would hope that that would translate into um, more brand loyalty, customer loyalty over the long run. And, you know, that, that save for later example is a really interesting one because you can imagine that, you know, while it, it kind of solves for one problem uh, for the consumer, it also creates another opportunity for the marketer. And I, I think you kind of said this in, in your response right. before, but, um, you know, it, it's now, all right, for those who aren't going to buy right now, um, I'm going to give them a chance at least to come back later, you know, rather than just losing them entirely. Right. Um, so they can, they can drop it in their basket and maybe they can forget about it. But next time they come back, they can be reminded that, oh, yeah, I, I meant to buy that and I still want it. So, so even doing good can, can be a win-win. Just a quick question on your methodology and, and apologies to the audience for, for my tangent. But in the survey, 
respondents completed a modified version of the impulse buying tendency scale, um, the IBT. And I'm curious, does this scale correlate with measures of self-control? Uh, I imagine it would, but wondered about their substitutability. It's a, it's a very good question. Um, so the short answer is yes. Um, general um, impulsivity or um, measures of general self-control certainly correlate with a more specific measure of self-control related to impulse buying. So we call that a more dom domain-specific measure of self-control. They do correlate, um, but there is, you know, there's evidence that it's it's more appropriate and a, a more valid and reliable measure to be measuring self-control in a more domain-specific um, manner. That's mm. that that's the best practice within uh, within research. So that's why we went with the domain-specific measure. Um, you know, if that's something that your your audience members um, felt was out of their um, toolbox and they wanted to or are more comfortable with more general uh, measures of self-control, that's certainly a, a fine proxy as well. But you make a really good point that you know someone who may have low self-control in one area may have high self-control in another. So yes. having kind of this general, do you or do you not have self-control uh, may not be the best way to pursue that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, th I think it was the American Psychological Society who... Um, they published a, uh, it was a really easy, I don't know, like maybe at most five questions, maybe even three questions, um, to help measure, uh, someone's baseline self-control. And, um, and, and, and not only did they kind of have a methodology and a, a typing tool to help you apply it, you know, in your own research, which I've done, um, several times. Um, but they also did a nationally representative survey so that you can benchmark, you know, your results to, you know, hey, my consumers are more or less, um, uh, you know, ha have higher or lower self-control than the national average, which 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 really cool. But I've, I've never looked into the impulse buying tendency scale. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm gonna have to check into that. That sounds really good. Uh, to your knowledge, are, are norms available for that scale? Or do you kind of just create your own benchmarks as you use it? Um. Yeah. So the prior work, there, there, there is a host of prior published work that's used um, this impulse buying tendency scale. The modification we made for this study was to add the online context. So if an item in the scale um, said something like, "I, I have um, trouble sticking to a shopping list," we we would add the qualifier um, online when doing online shopping, for example. So it's a not, it's not a one for one match. Um, but it certainly is, is close and you can look in the prior literature at, um, what those average values are and what you might expect. I say that and recommend that, um, with the caveat and the encouragement that, um, you know, marketers are, if they're looking into the, how to characterize their, their target audiences in terms of self-control that they're doing it, for the purposes of helping the consumer uh, and not potentially to uh, exploit perhaps sub populations who might be struggling with self-control, that would not be the intention. That would be in my eyes, um, pretty unethical. Yes. So, and, and, yeah. and, and again, your paper is clear on that. Um, your, your position is, uh, is clear on that. And, and as we addressed up front, um, that's, that is not what we're advocating here. Perfect. Yeah. Um, you know, but as I've used, the um, the measure of self control uh, or the self control scale. Uh, one of the things which is obvious is first of all the, the I, I almost felt uh, intrusive 
in the questions because um, they, they really ask people to admit things about themselves that, that A, I'm not sure people would want to admit, and B, I'm not sure people necessarily always recognize whether they have high or low self-control. Um, right? So there's the, um, you know, the kind of the social desirability of, of answering this question. Um, this is something, even if I do know it about myself, do I want others to know it about me? Um, but then, then there's that, you know, that dynamic of, I'm, I just may not know that I'm impulsive when in fact I am. Um, is the impulse buying tendency scale, does that, does that account for that? Or, or is that also, you know, you have to, you have to A, know, and B, be willing to, to say. I think that, uh, that's a very good point, And that is a criticism of a lot of survey methodology, you know, that the social desirability, um, bias, really speaks to the validity of a particular question in a, an item in a survey. So do you, are your participants going to really answer the, the way the accurately, or are they going to answer the way they want to be seen or perceived? Um, so that's, that's a, that's a shortcoming, I think, uh, um, uh, of all, almost all survey methodology. Mm-hmm. The awareness component is also an important, um, limitation of survey methodology that you point out. In this case, the items, um, single items within a larger scale, so say you have five items, five questions, those items can be asked in a way, hopefully, that don't require um, a higher level of introspection and trying to um, sort of figure out this higher meta level of personality dimensions. They're asking very concrete questions like, I often use a shopping list when I'm going shopping, or... I find it difficult to say no to a sale or deal. You know, those questions are probably a little bit easier uh, to answer than I, I think that I'm an impulsive buyer. That would be a, a more difficult question to answer. Yes. And, and that's more consistent with the, the, you know, the self-control scale that I've used in the past. I mean, again, some of the, I felt, you know, like I was almost maybe overstepping my boundaries and asking the question and cringing a little bit. And so I, in fact, I'd always put them at the end of the survey in case it would just cause some people to say, that's it, I'm out. Sure. Um, so at least I got, you know, the rest of the content. But, um, you know, again, it, they were, it was for good intentions, but, but it was the only approach that I was aware of that had, you know, any type of academic endorsement. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Carol, I think this paper is an absolute must read for this audience and anyone else involved with e-commerce. Um, and, and we talked about, you know, both of the methodologies and, and you did a, just a terrific job uh, bringing it to life. Um, obviously, I encourage people to read the paper. Um, it's a great resource. And, and I'm just going to give the title again. It's called Impulse Buying, Design Practices and Consumer Needs. Um, is there anything else from the paper that we didn't discuss, but we should have? No, I think that generally, you know, we've covered this this idea that, you know, impulse buying is, um, can be problematic for some consumers. And so we know that e-commerce sites are going to be using these, these features. So keeping in mind how we can be more, um, responsible and mindful of the design decisions we make, uh, and if they're being considerate to the, the being of the consumer. Curious, having done this work, did it change the way you do your own shopping online or just given your background, you've always kind of you've got your antenna up every time you no, do. Absolutely. Yeah. No, um, my own research has certainly affected my own purchasing behavior. I'm, I'm a parent of two small children. And so now I do more impulse buying than I have ever before in my adulthood. And so a- after starting this line of research, I find myself 
trying to be a little bit more mindful about what I'm purchasing. Do I really need that one more toy? Do I really <laughs> need that, that one more item? Um, and honestly, I, I do find that I, I feel greater value in the items I do buy when I am being a little bit more mindful about it. To your knowledge, are there any good books or articles that you might recommend to those who want to learn more about this topic? Um, you mentioned the white paper before that talked about the kind of um, kind of the revenue and tactic um, relationship. Yeah, that's a great uh, white paper. And the title of that paper is What Works in E-Commerce? A Meta-Analysis of 6,700 Online Experiments. And it's done by um, Brown and Jones are the two author names. Um, so that's out there on the web. Um, you can find that pretty easily. And for those of in your audience that are interested in this idea of ethical design and dark patterns, um, there's a great paper by Colin Gray and, and um, collaborators. And the title of that paper is The Dark Patterns Side of UX Design. Um, that's published through um, a journal proceedings called CHI and one of the top journals in human-computer interaction. And I would uh, highly recommend that read. Terrific. Oh, those are great uh, referrals. Thank you for sharing those. And, and if people want to learn more about your research, either this or other work that you may be doing, um, it, is, or is it okay for people to reach out to you? And, and if so, what's the best way for them to do so? Absolutely. Um, I love to talk about the, these topics. And um, you can reach me and my, some of my work and my material at my website, carolmoser.com. And my contact information is in there as well. Terrific. Well, Carol, thank you so much. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And thanks for taking the time to speak with us about online impulse buying. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics.